Welcome to Abide in Liberty, a podcast empowering patriots everywhere to re-enthrone faith, family, and freedom as the bedrock pillars of liberty in education, our communities, and our nation. Welcome back, everybody, for this week's episode of Abide in Liberty. Uh, As a reminder, we're thick in the middle of going through the principles of freedom enshrined in the Constitution as outlined by Cleon Skousen in the book 5,000 Year Leap. Uh, If you haven't been caught up on the prior episodes in this season, I highly recommend you go back and start with part one. These principles tend to build on each other. And making sure that you understand the principles we're going to be talking about today, it's important that you go back and have that foundation from the earlier episode. So I highly recommend, if you're just coming into the middle of this, go back and start at part one. Some of these concepts and principles that we're going to talk about today are probably ones that you've heard of before. Um, These tend to be principles that actually still do get taught uh, in modern government classes and schools, Uh, but maybe with a little bit of a different twist. Again, we're going to look at how the founding fathers looked at these things and where these ideas came from. Some of them are original to the founding fathers and others are not. Others that are borrowed or further developed from the founding fathers, but taken from prior thinkers, prior philosophers. Um, They really took everything that they could from anyone who had ever spoken on the subject and tried to synthesize all that information apply their own experience to create what we have today. It was really, really remarkable. The next principle that we're going to talk about is the principle of a free market economy. So far, everything that we've been talking about is the principle of government. Now, the economy in and of itself is an enormous topic. So we're going to keep this confined uh, pretty narrowly today, but we will come back and talk more and go more into depth on this because the economy is incredibly important, and it works hand-in-hand with the government. The answer for how to manage the economy of this new country showed up just in the nick of time. In 1776, the same year that the Declaration of Independence was issued, a college professor in Scotland published a book called The Wealth of Nations. This was written by Adam Smith, the father of the modern free market economy. He, his model of free enterprise and unfettered trade was first tried in America. He came up with the idea, we put it into practice here. And there were kind of four fundamental laws of economic freedom that were encapsulated in his work. The first is the freedom to try. You have the freedom, if you have an idea, to pursue it. It might be crazy. It might be as crazy as we're going to send messages over a wire using electricity. We're going to try it. Guess what? People here had the freedom to try that. You have people like the the Wright brothers who were not college educated. They were bicycle manufacturers. They had a bike shop and they made bikes and sold them. They had the freedom to say, you know what? We don't really have the right credentials. We don't play in all of the really fancy engineering circles, all the people who are trying to solve the problem of flight, but we think we can do it. We're going to try. And they did. They not only tried, but they were the first to come up with an airplane that could be controlled safely and was functional in a real way. The second economic freedom is the freedom to buy. 
You can buy what you want. If there's something you want, go for it. You don't have to go check in with some government magistrate. You don't have to show any kind of a card that says, look, here's my ration card. You can buy what you want to buy. The third principle of economic freedom is the freedom to sell. There's something you have or that you can make that you would like to sell to somebody else. You can do that. You can do that. Um, If you want to make bikes and sell it, go for it. If you want to make iPhones and sell it, go for it. You don't have to go double check with somebody else first. Hey, I've got this idea. Is it okay if I sell this? And you got to go through a process and get approved. That doesn't exist or shouldn't exist in a free market. And the fourth economic freedom, and this one's important, and we have completely lost sight of this one in America the past decade or so. The fourth economic principle of economic freedom is the freedom to fail. You know, when during the Great Recession, when the government swooped in and bailed out these banks that were on the brink of failing, they were huge banks. And yeah, the impact of that would have been really, really painful. But when that freedom of those banks to fail was eliminated, that felt wrong. And I, it, I, I didn't, couldn't really put my finger on what it was. I couldn't put my finger on that principle, but this is it. This is that principle. The freedom to fail in a free economy is so important. If you have an idea and you try it and it doesn't work, it's not, um, it's not a viable option or you overstretch yourself and you make poor business decisions, which was the case of the banks uh, prior to the Great Recession, then that freedom to fail is vitally important. Bad behavior or bad products should be rewarded as such and should be cleaned out to make way for those who will do it right, who will make a better product, who will behave better. Um, So the freedom to fail is, is just enormously important. And the more that we remove that that incentive, that fear of failure, because, hey, if I get big enough, the government will step in and fix it for me. When that becomes the mentality, then we have an economy that is encumbered more and more by dead weight. And it slows things down, and it has. I remember remember looking at the the situation with the Great Recession and looking at that and thinking, there, we're going to see, I don't know how long it's going to take, but we're going to see that there is some impact of of this problem of bailing these banks out. I don't know exactly what it is, but we're going to realize someday what it is. Well, we're living it today. As a result of that bailout, the government lowered interest rates to make it really easy for banks to lend to each other and get capital. These banks that had made terrible lending decisions all of a sudden had the floodgates open to be able to get capital. And over the past, since that point in 2008, when they brought interest rates down to zero or close to it, it stayed there. Normally what would happen is you would do that for a short time and then you'd slowly raise interest rates back up to a reasonable level. We never got to that point where we were strong enough that we could do that because we kind of had a lot of this dead weight that should have been allowed to go by the wayside. So now we're at a position where we have rampant inflation and the way you control inflation is to raise the interest rates. But our economy hasn't strengthened enough to the point because government's been propping it up this whole time. It, it isn't strong enough to where we can increase inflation, increase interest rates to curb inflation without tanking the economy and throwing us into a recession, if not a depression. So because, I mean, we can see the direct result of this now. We're in this no-win situation. And I don't care what any political candidate says, 
no incoming candidate has the tools to fix this problem. We're going to have to just suffer through it because the way you control inflation is to bring up interest rates. You bring up interest rates, it slows the economy down, and we were in a bad spot to begin with. So, you know, again, we, yes, the intention was good. We're going to save some pain from the common people, but whenever you violate a principle in order to save pain today, that pain is going to be compounded in the future. And we get to live that now of that real example of violating this principle of the freedom to fail. And just to kind of give you a picture of how well Adam Smith's program worked and how well the the American experiment worked with free market economy by 1905. So this was 120-ish years after the Constitution had been ratified. The United States of America had 5% of the Earth's continental land area and about 6% of the world's population. So land, yeah, United States is big, but compared to the rest of the land in the world, 5%. Pretty big population, and a lot of people had come to the United States, but it still was only 6% of the world population. But by 1905, the United States of America was producing more than half of almost everything on the planet. That's incredible. This free market economy worked, and not only did it work, but it worked incredibly well. And the United States was richer than any country in history. It was able to help more countries than any country had been able to in the past because it had been allowed to just thrive under this free market system. Now, government does have some role to play in a free market system. And let's talk about what some of those are. The government should be there to help prevent and protect against illegal force in the market, compelling someone to buy or sell certain things. Okay, the government should prevent someone from holding a gun to your head and forcing you to buy something. And this is one of the reasons why the forced purchase of insurance, health insurance by the federal government was a problem. That was ruled unconstitutional because the government's supposed to be protecting against forced purchasing. And here it was passing a law that required you to purchase something. The second thing that the government is supposed to protect against is fraud. Um, it should, there should be systems in place to make sure that someone's not coming in and selling you, telling you that what you're buying is one thing when really it's a fraudulent thing. It's of lesser quality. So there is a role to play there to make sure that people have confidence when they're buying something that they know what they're getting. That's really crucial for goods and services to flow freely is trust in what you're getting. The government should also be in charge of protecting against monopolies. So if you have companies that are coming together or one company that gets so large that they're able to exert complete market dominance, kill competition, set prices at whatever they want, and the forces of supply and demand have no sway, it's the government's responsibility to go and break that up and preserve free markets, preserve the pressures of supply and demand. And the fourth thing that the government has a role in, in a free market, is to prevent debauchery. Now, this seems really strange to us in America today because in many cases, it seems the government promotes debauchery in some cases. But for a long time in our history, it was the government's job to make sure that we're not promoting the sale and purchase of things like pornography, drugs, prostitution, there are some things that 
decay a society morally and the government should prevent those from having free access to be bought and sold. And this was the system that we operated under up until the 1920s. In the 1920s, there was an anti-founding movement. The founding fathers came under attack. The free market economy espoused by Adam Smith came under attack. Um, People believe that those ideas were old and outdated. The, the 20s in particular, called the Roaring 20s, we just, our country, we thought we were invincible. We were it. We were the thing. And we were. I mean, we were producing more than half of everything with a fraction of the population. We got prideful and we thought, yeah, those ideas worked before, but we can come up with new, better ways of doing things now. And so, the Founding Fathers and Adam Smith got kicked out and in came Karl Marx. Now, in the 1920s, it wasn't obvious yet what an evil communism was. It was kind of new to the scene. During, um, during the First World War and the teens, Russia was just starting to experiment with communism and it was starting to pop up all over Europe. And this was seen as, again, man, great intentions. We want everyone to have equal things. We want everyone to be taken care of equally. And that sounds great on the surface, but when you take away property then all the things that we've already talked about, the incentive to work hard, um, go away. And what you end up with is misery and poverty every single time it's worked out that way. But we didn't know that in the 1920s. So when we come out of the 1920s, we come into the Great Depression, we've already kind of kicked the founders to the curb and it opened up our country to be susceptible to ideas like communistic thinking, where it's the government's job to take care of everybody, where the government can take and grab all this land and it gets to decide what to do with it. The government's going to provide all this welfare. It was kind of in that seedbed of we're too good for the founding principles that all of these seeds were planted. And what we have today, there are elements of a free market economy, but there are lots of elements of social of socialist um, economic practices as well. We don't have a free market economy. So when you hear things like the free market is dead, it doesn't work anymore, don't believe it. It's It did work. The reason why it's not working currently is because we've, we've adulterated it. We've spoiled it. We've mixed it with something else and it's not pure. It worked great until we started trying different things. When we started violating the principles of what had made us successful, things got worse. And it happens every single time. You cannot violate eternal truth and expect to have better outcomes. All right. The next two principles we're going to talk about are the separation of powers into three different branches of government and then checks and balances. So this idea of, of different branches of government actually started back around 200 BC with a Greek philosopher named Polybius. And there was a lot of debate at the time about which form of government was best. And some people would look at monarchy and say, this is the best one because it has the strength to administer the government, especially in war. And in an area where wars were common, man, that is important. You've got to have a decisive leader that can make calls quickly, do what they need to do, conscript people into the army and protect our borders. So a lot of people voted for that one. Monarchy is the best. But the problem with it was that it tended toward tyranny. Someone gets too much power and they start to abuse it. Others espoused aristocracy as the best form of government. And an aristocracy was meant to represent the interests of the wealthy and those who controlled the majority of the resources of a nation. But 
aristocracy tended to devolve into something called oligarchy, which is oppressive government by a few rich families. And everyone else just kind of gets to be the serfs and gets to serve those few rich families. And others still, and this is one that Greece practiced with or, or experimented with, was democracy. Because this represented the masses. This is the one that represented the vast majority of the people. So that's the one that was the best. But inevitably, in every single time a democracy is tried, it turns into mob rule and just a violent, terrible end. So each of these types of government has some real positives, but have some major downsides. And Polybius was the first one to say, hey, maybe we should look at implementing elements of all three. Let's take the best of these three different forms of government and figure out a way to protect ourselves against their downfalls. That idea kind of fizzled out and died, though, and didn't get really picked up and brought into the mainstream until the 1700s by a French guy named Baron Charles de Montesquieu. And he brought this idea of separate but coordinated powers into the mainstream. And he's this idea has widely been acknowledged as hugely influential in our founding. And the founding fathers certainly did grasp onto that. And they didn't implement it exactly the way they he did. They he they took the concepts from Montesquieu, but made it their own. They built on it and did even more with it. So you have an executive branch that can make certain decisions very quickly. This is our commander in chief. So in times of war, we have a decisive leader that we can turn to to help guide and, and bring us in safely. You have a Senate that represents the states. This is kind of the equivalent of the aristocracy. This is looking out for the interests of the entities that have a lot of the resources, the states. And then you have the House of Representatives, and this is the one that represents the people. This is kind of the equivalent of the democracy. And then they did throw in kind of a fourth quasi-branch of government, um, the judicial branch was really just meant as a safeguard. The the judicial branch didn't, at least, have the authority to act in any way on their own. The executive branch, the Senate, and the House of Representatives all had powers and things that they could act on proactively. The judicial branch was strictly reactive. They were the ones that, as things came through, they could determine whether some of the acts of those other branches were constitutional or not, and that was their sole function. Now, that leads us into this next uh, principle of checks and balances. So there were a lot of people um, and some states wanted during the ratification conventions for the Constitution, some really, really wanted a complete separation of powers where every branch has its own responsibilities and none of the branches could touch each other or influence each other in any way whatsoever. James Madison addressed that when he said, I shall undertake to show that unless these departments be so far connected and blended as to give each a constitutional control over the others, the degree of separation which the maxim of Montesquieu requires as essential to free government can never in practice be duly maintained. So he's saying, you know, complete separation would be great. It's just not practical. It's not going to work. Because what happens if you have an executive that starts to exceed his responsibilities, starts to exceed his authority. If there's not a a mechanism for the legislative branch or the House of Representatives or the Senate or the judicial branch to reach over and stop him or her, then we're going to have a problem. You're going to end up with 
every one of these branches of government taking on authority without any way to really constrain them. So the idea is that each branch would be given some level of control, some checks against other branches of government. So if the executive branch starts to overstep his bounds, then the House of Representatives or the Senate can step in and curtail that. Now, the founding fathers thought in setting it up this way with these checks and balances, they assumed that every single branch of government, because people want power, that every branch of government would jealously guard its own authority. And it hasn't really turned out that way. We have judges who are reinterpreting the Constitution and creating new laws. In the case of the Affordable Cares Act, or commonly known as Obamacare, when it came through the Supreme Court, it was unconstitutional as written. And one of the judges took it upon himself to rewrite that law so that it would fit and it could squeak through the Supreme Court. That is not the job of the judicial branch. It looks at the law. Is it constitutional or not? It can point out what parts of the Constitution are unconstitutional, and then you send it back to the legislative branch to do it. It's not the the judge's responsibility to step in and help the legislature write laws. Huge overstep. And what happened as a result of that? The other branches did not exert their influence to stop that. We also have executive orders that are raining down like nobody's business. And this is not unique to any political party. They're all doing it. They're creating laws when the executive branch has no business creating laws. You also have legislators and the House of Representatives and the Senate who have delegated lawmaking authority to federal agencies. So we don't want to make all these laws. We'll give you authority to you figure out what the laws are and you just implement them. So you got this situation where if something goes wrong, so legislators, our representatives can say, oh, what not? It was those guys. And those guys can say, uh, you gave us the authority. So it's a finger pointing game and they're able to avoid responsibility. It has not worked out in practice where each branch of government is exerting its checks and balances on others. They have let each other get away with stuff. And that's a problem. And that's one of the reasons why we have seen growth in government, growth in federal power beyond anything that the founders had hoped for. I want to spend just a quick minute talking about what some of those checks and balances are. We'll spend, I do want to spend some time in a later episode going in depth into what the different federal powers are versus state powers and what all the checks and balances are. But just to kind of give you a little bit of an introduction, you know, for example, the House of Representatives and the Senate have to approve each other's bills. And if they both agree, it goes, the law goes to the president for approval. And the president should be looking at those laws to determine whether they're constitutional or not. If they are constitutional, he should sign them. If they're not constitutional, then he should veto them. But that's not where the buck stops either. If the House of Representatives and the Senate still want to pass the law, they can if they can get two-thirds of both houses to agree to pass it. So in this case, the executive has a check on the legislative, but they can countermand that. And there are so many instances like this where there's these little hooks from one branch into another that allows them to keep each other honest. And it really, the way that they have synthesized all these different things is, is brilliant. The president can nominate judges to the Supreme Court and to lower courts, but the Senate has to confirm them. The House of Representatives can impeach the president but to remove him completely from office, you have to have an agreement by the Senate. The executive 
can enforce, is responsible for enforcing the laws passed by Congress. Hmm, But what happens if he takes it upon himself or she takes it upon herself to exceed his mandate, to enforce laws that the legislature didn't pass? Well, the legislature has control of the purse. They're completely, the House of Representatives in particular, is completely in control of the budget. So the executive is overstepping their bounds you can cut off the money supply so that they can't, you can choose not to fund those things that he's doing that are inappropriate. So anyways, these are just a few examples, but they're interwoven throughout the entire constitution. And the way that they did this, this is where they really took what Montesquieu and others had done and made it their own, applied their own common sense, their own experience to weave this this web of interconnected dependencies between the branches of government to keep things in check. And it has done a remarkable job. I talked about some of the problems. And if each branch would guard its powers as jealously as the founders thought they would, it would be even better. But the reason why, one of the reasons why this is the longest running constitution in world history is because of the way that they masterfully crafted those things together. And we owe them a great debt of thanks for the mental muscle that they put into figuring all this out for us. It seems obvious to us now today, but that's just because they did the hard work for us and thank goodness for them. Thank you for listening to Abide in Liberty. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes and share this with friends and family. In the meantime, keep up with the show online at abideinliberty.com. Also, if you'd like to help our K-12 bless and educate more families, contact us by visiting libertyyouthacademy.org. Until next time, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, and be strong.